religious people report less porn use and more porn addiction. And that fundamentally, when you're thinking about an actual addiction, does not make sense. You would not expect a group that is using less to have more problems, right? But that's what we see. And it, it does speak to that moral incongruence piece. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. This is the third installment in a four-part series on the science of porn. As we discussed in the previous shows, porn is something that doesn't seem to cause problems for most people. But there is this small minority who seem really distressed about their porn use and connected to various problems in their lives. These folks can be divided into two main groups, those whose problems stem from shame and guilt about using porn, and those who truly have compulsive sexual tendencies that contribute to out-of-control behaviors. We're going to focus on the former in this episode and the latter in the next. So today, we're going to dive into what's known as moral incongruence. This is when people are engaging in sexual behaviors, like porn use, that conflict with strongly held moral values relating to sex. When this happens, it creates a lot of distress. These folks may feel that their porn use is spiraling out of control, even though they're using porn infrequently at much lower than average levels. For them, the problem with porn isn't about how much they're using it. It's about the fact that they're using it at all. This creates a fascinating paradox where the people experiencing the most negative effects of porn are the ones who are actually using it the least. So let's dive into moral incongruence. We're going to talk about how this manifests, the difference between how porn affects religious and non-religious persons, as well as how therapists treat porn problems stemming from moral incongruence. For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Joshua Grubbs, a clinical psychologist and associate professor in the clinical psychology program at Bowling Green State University. Josh will soon be joining the faculty in the Clinical Science PhD program at the University of New Mexico in the Center for Alcohol, Substance Use, and Addiction. He conducts research on addiction, personality, and morality. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, and he has received more than $1.5 million in grants to support his research. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, 
Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Josh, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. So you've conducted research on a number of important topics, but a lot of it has focused on pornography use and how it affects people. So I want to start by asking you how you got into researching pornography and why you think it's an important topic to study. Yeah, so I mean, this is... There's versions of this origin story, if you will, that I could go on for an hour about, but I'll, I'll give a more <laughs> abbreviated version. Uh, so I actually, and this is, is pretty public knowledge, I actually attended an evangelical Christian university for my undergraduate training. And during my, my years there, this would have been 2006 to 2010, just about, maybe the biggest social issue that was all the buzz among students and the student leadership and the pastoral folks on campus, the kind of the pastors and religious leaders that were part of the campus community, was the epidemic of pornography addiction among young men. So there was this, this kind of obsessive focus on it. They didn't really have a counseling center, but to the extent that the counseling center existed, it was dealing mostly with porn addiction and young men. And they had recovery groups for that. And everyone was supposed to have an accountability partner. And you'd have guys, you know, literally writing messages on their computer to themselves not to look lustfully at somebody. So it was this kind of obsessive focus on it. And I was starting my career in psychology at that point in time. And I honestly wasn't super skeptical of it initially. But then I remember hearing a statistic. It was some speaker in some chapel event saying that half of Christian men were addicted to porn. And I thought, huh, that does not seem like that's an unbelievable statistic. And I don't mean unbelievable as, as in, wow, I mean, unbelievable as in, I don't believe it. Like this, this doesn't seem right. And so that, that question, as I was integrating into more of my psychology training and realizing that this was the career I wanted to go into and that I wanted to go into grad school, kind of sparked there. And we started researching this phenomenon, even a little bit in undergrad, but then especially through my graduate training, of just trying to delve into why do religious young men in particular think they have porn addiction at such absurdly high rates. Yeah, that's so that's kind of where it starts. <laughs> that's an interesting question indeed. Thank you for sharing all of that. So it sounds like you had a pretty unique background in terms of how you arrived at this. And that's one of the reasons why I like to ask my guests about their origin stories, because everybody's is a little bit different. So I recently had Dr. Nicole Prousey on the podcast to talk about her research on pornography. And as part of that, we talked about the concept of porn addiction. And her view is that while some people report that porn has negative effects on their lives, porn itself is not an addiction in the clinical sense in the same way that, say, alcohol or drugs are. So what's your take on this? Do you see porn as being addictive or not? It's a really tricky question to answer concisely, but... If you ask me if I think porn is addictive, I would say no. If you ask me if I think that pornography addiction is real, I would say no, but I do think that some people have behaviors that look like an addiction. And so that sounds kind of like a, a weird contradiction, but there are is clear and abundant evidence that some people do have problem regulating their pornography use. Some people do watch too often to the point that they're getting fired for watching it at work or that their relationships are falling apart because they're spending hours a day doing it. Just because you do something compulsively or do something more than you want to doesn't make it a true addiction, if you will, in the same way that we might see with more substance-based addictions, like you mentioned, like alcohol or opioids. 
Yeah. So I'm in line with you in terms of how you think about this. And I do think that addiction label does tend to get overused. You know, people throw that addiction term around all the time that we're addicted to our smartphones, we're addicted to television, we're addicted to this or that. And when you start using it in that way, the term just kind of starts to lose all meaning because it just kind of becomes this catch all. So, you know, there's the definition of what is an addiction in the clinical sense and does it have characteristics like substances where there's a tolerance effect and all of these other sorts of things. And, you know, that's where pornography and media consumption, things like that, are different in a way. You know, people might casually call them addictions, but clinically, they don't really seem to operate in that same way. Yeah. When we think about out-of-control behavior patterns and we think about addiction, I mean, you can be out of control without it being an addiction. You can be struggling with something or want to reduce a behavior without it being an addiction. Now, I also understand that for a lot of people in the public, when they say, I'm addicted to pornography, they're not saying, I am DSM-5, this is the definition of addiction, this is what I have with pornography. What they're saying is, I feel like I can't stop. And so I do think that how scientists use it and how people in the public might use it are slightly different, but I also think that words matter. And so that if people are calling it an addiction when it's really not, they may they may take a belief set, if you will, about the pornography use that takes some of that power away from them to change their own behaviors or to even accept behaviors that they don't need to change. Yeah, I think those are all really important points. Now, much of your recent research has focused on the concept of moral incongruence in relation to pornography's effects on people. So let's start with the definition. When you say the term moral incongruence, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think moral incongruence uh, sounds like a, a big fancy sort of psychological term, if you will. And it's really just a academic way of saying the feeling you get when your beliefs or your values and your actual actions don't line up. In the case with pornography, it would be the feeling when your beliefs about pornography and your use of pornography don't line up. So if you think you should never use pornography and you're using it once a month, you probably experience some incongruence because your values say this is bad, but your actions say, well, I still like viewing it. So as you were talking about that, I couldn't help but think as a social psychologist of the concept of cognitive dissonance, where, you know, basically it's a kind of similar idea in the sense that you have two things that are in conflict with one another. For example, you might hold two beliefs that, you know, seemingly contradict one another, or you're engaging in a behavior that's inconsistent with your attitude. So I'm curious, have you thought about this in relation to the broader cognitive dissonance literature? Yes, I, I think that the cognitive dissonance literature did form a fair bit of the foundation of what we did here. There was a little bit of self-perception theory as well, if we go back to like the original works that we wrote on this. But it is this idea that people experience distress when how they want to think about themselves and how they're actually acting don't line up. And there has to be a way to reconcile that distress. You can change your beliefs so that they match your behaviors. You could change your behaviors so that they match your beliefs. Or in the case of moral incongruence and pornography, you might come up with an alternative explanation that alleviates some of that distress. So it's, it's very distressing to feel like you're doing something that's morally wrong for most people. But if you have an addiction, perhaps that's a way of saying, you know what, this isn't my fault. And I want to be careful. I mean, again, some people do have very real problems, but for some people, I think the addiction labeling is a way to alleviate that internal distress. 
Yeah, and I agree with that. And it makes sense in terms of other things that I've read on this particular subject, that the language we use to describe our behaviors, you know, for example, using a term like addiction, you know, again, if you think of it through social psychological terms, it makes it so that it's no longer an internal attribution. You know, you can say it's the result of a disease process or something else. And so that can make somebody perhaps feel somewhat less distressed by it. Although, you know, people who identify as foreign addicts tend to report a lot of distress, but maybe that is a way that kind of allows them to move on to some degree. So in the context of pornography use, how does moral incongruence play out in terms of how people feel about this behavior and whether they self-identify with or label themselves as porn addicts? Well, you know, the really consistent finding that we have had in our American samples, we've also seen similar findings in, in samples in various parts of Europe. There's actually even the same thing has shown up in China as well, although there's some important nuances there, is that moral incongruence, this moral disapproval of pornography amplifies the relationship between how often you view pornography and the likelihood of identifying as addicted to pornography. And so I want to unpack that a little bit. But what that means is that for people that think that using porn is completely normal part of healthy sexuality, you know, all things in moderation, if you will, they don't have any moral qualms about it. The link between how often they view porn or how much they view porn and how addicted they feel is extremely weak. Like There's just very little relationship there. But if you look at someone who's above average in moral disapproval, someone that really does think porn is morally wrong, the link between how often they view porn and how addicted they feel is extremely strong. It's to the extent that which people that are only viewing rarely, even that rare amount, say once a month, is enough for them to maybe identify with this idea of I feel addicted to pornography. And so to me, it seems like that's one of the really key pieces of evidence for this theory of moral incongruence, where if the amount that you're watching, you know, even if it's a, this tiny amount, can provoke so much distress, you know, it's not so much about the amount of porn that you're using, just the fact that you're engaging in a behavior at all. And that's enough to sort of create these feelings of distress. Uh, so I'm curious, what are some of the other convincing pieces of evidence or things you found in your research that really support this idea that it's moral incongruence and not porn use itself that seems to be causing a lot of problems for a lot of people. There's a few different pieces to that. One, there's a great paper by a researcher by the name of Beata Bota, who um, did a, a very large-scale study. And the title of the paper is High-Frequency Porn Use is Not Always Problematic. And I mean, the title tells you the whole thing where they, they go through, and this was actually in Hungarian samples, and I believe they had a German sample and an American sample in that one. And they go through kind of systematically and show that there's a large percentage of people that are even viewing pornography frequently without reporting any problems, distress, or anything associated with it. Again, we've shown this again, I mean, in thousands upon thousands of participants across samples in the U.S. We've used nationally representative samples. We've used college students. We've seen just general samples of Internet users. It's pretty consistent there. A lot of other independent research groups in the U.S. have actually replicated this finding. So it replicates across the U.S. with different groups. And that's important when you're evaluating the quality of science. You want to see that different groups can arrive at the same conclusion. And then also there have been a few pre-registered studies or registered reports uh, in our case, either in our lab or in other labs where people went on the record and recorded beforehand, this is what we're expecting to see. 
We're expecting to see this moral incongruence play out. Then they go do the study, and that's what plays out. And so they're kind of publicly staking their claim beforehand and then showing that it's there. And this is, in the broader sense of kind of psychological research, this is one of the stronger ways to make a case. And then there's qualitative studies that show this as well. So mixed methods show it. This is not maybe evidence, but I've had countless pastors, religious leaders, or general um, religious individuals talk about how this matches their experience and how they focus on things. And then we even have seen recently, there was a study a couple of years ago, one or two years ago now, that came out of China showing this, that people that endorse more conservative sexual values seem to be a little bit more likely to endorse um, feeling addicted to pornography use when they were using it. Yeah, so there seems to be a lot of evidence for this idea, and I've seen a number of papers emerge in recent years reporting on this. I think it coincides with the rise of the term porn addiction in the popular media. You know, that gets talked about all the time. And, you know, as people have been talking more about that in public discourse, it's become a bigger subject of academic discourse as well in terms of research on pornography. So, I'm curious about something, which is whether religious people in general are more likely to report problems centering around porn than non-religious people, or if it's just the case that moral incongruence is more likely to be the cause, the root cause of problems for religious people compared to non-religious people. So I think actually the answer to both of those questions is yes, and, and I'll explain. So it depends on where you're asking the question. So I mentioned that study that was conducted in China. There actually was not any association with religion there. But in the U.S. in particular, and in many parts of Europe, some parts of Latin America as well, conservative sexual values, the belief that pornography is morally wrong, and religiousness just coincide a ton, right? In the U.S., we know from studies that we've done and various other ones that, that the preponderance of reasons that people think that pornography is wrong boil down to religious values or explicit religious beliefs. And so religious people are more likely to think pornography is wrong and are therefore, when they use it, more likely to experience feelings of addiction to it. And so there's this really fascinating finding. We've shown it across several studies. And I always find this so interesting is that religious people report less porn use and more porn addiction. And that fundamentally, when you're thinking about an actual addiction, does not make sense. You would not expect a group that is using less to have more problems, right? But that's what we see. And it, it does speak to that moral incongruence piece. Yeah, that is a truly fascinating finding. Now, is moral incongruence only relevant when talking about porn, or can people experience this effect in other areas of their sex lives? So, for example, some people who engage in same-sex behavior or have sex outside of marriage might experience a moral conflict about that. So, how does moral incongruence play out beyond the context of porn? It can apply to a range of sexual behaviors. I think it can also apply actually outside of sexual behaviors as well. But we've shown in at least one study with same-sex behavior in particular, looking at men that were having sex with men, if they also thought that it was morally wrong to do that, they were reporting more distress in their life, more depression, more difficulties just in general. But yeah, I think that you know sexual values are typically very deeply held for a lot of people. I mean, I think that especially if you come from a religious background, those types of things, sexuality is ingrained in you as what you should and should not do, right? If you're coming from the conservative traditions in the U.S., heterosexual monogamy within the context of marriage only is the only thing that's allowed. Masturbation, same-sex behavior, pornography use, anything else, anything creative <laughs> at all really has a lot of stigma around it. And when that is kind of ingrained in you from the time that you're prepubescent into adulthood, it's no wonder that if you find that you have 
non heterosexual monogamous within the confines of marriage, only sexual desires, fantasies, or behaviors, it creates a bit of issues for you. Yeah, absolutely. So although moral incongruence, we talk about it a lot in the context of porn can really be applied to so many different aspects of our sex lives and also beyond. Now, beyond creating psychological distress, what are some of the other ways that moral incongruence might impact people's sex lives and relationships? So, for example, much has been said and written in the popular media about porn breaking men's dicks or causing erectile dysfunction, you know. But might it be the case that for men who connect their ED to porn, that maybe it's moral incongruence that's the cause because it's creating stress and anxiety that then makes it harder to get hard? What do you think about that? I think that that's a very plausible hypothesis. And so what, what we do pretty consistently see from research related to pornography use and erectile functioning or sexual functioning in general, we can expand this to both people that are assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth or any configuration really, we see is that frequency of pornography use is not related to problems. Feeling like you have extremely high sex drive does not relate to problems. Feeling like you're addicted to pornography, particularly if you feel very distressed about being addicted to pornography, that is related to reported problems in sexual functioning. And that, that seems to show up for both uh, generally in the study I'm thinking of, they just looked at men versus women, but it's, it does seem to show up across both where there seems to be something about this belief that that you're addicted, this belief that something's wrong with you and your sexuality that's also related to diminished sexual functioning, more erectile dysfunctioning, or in the case of women, more issues with getting aroused and staying aroused during sexual encounters. And so there is a, a pretty strong argument then to be made if that link is there. And then we already know that in the public, there's this link between moral incongruence and feeling addicted. It's not hard to see, well, that's how the chain goes. Yeah. So you know, this whole idea of porn-induced erectile dysfunction that often gets thrown around in the media and is not an actual diagnosis in psychology or psychiatry, it might not be so much about the porn. Rather, it might be more about how people feel about their porn behavior and then the anxiety, the stress, and all of that that it creates. We know that anxiety and stress are factors that can just make it very difficult to relax, to be in that state of mind physically and psychologically that you need to be in in order for arousal to really even set in. So you can see where that could be a, a plausible explanation there. Even in my clinical experience as a clinical psychologist, looking at these things, the times that you see people experiencing issues with erectile dysfunction that they attribute to pornography use, Sexual shame, sexual anxiety, performance anxiety, if you will, are often a part. And then the other factor is that you hear about, you know, someone saying, well, I wasn't able to perform with my girlfriend. And then after you, you know, dig into it deeper, well, you had also masturbated four or five times the same day before you tried to get with your girlfriend. And it may just quite literally be <laughs> physical limitations. And so, like, there, there's things that, that come up that, at least in my experience, there's always another explanation than just oh, only porn is what does it. Yeah, I think that's true with regard to so many sexual difficulties, because, you know, as I talk about in my textbook, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, sexual difficulties are a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And, you know, porn could be one of those social environmental factors that's playing a role there, but there's probably a lot more going on than just that. So since you mentioned you're a clinical psychologist and you have some clinical experience, do you see 
patients coming in often who have complaints that center around pornography? Like, how commonly does this come up? You know, in my my own practice, I don't see it a ton. Uh, and it's probably more just the setting. I'm currently at a, a kind of rural area, rural university, and most of the clients I see are in that setting. We do see a few every year, either college students seeking help for it or um, someone from the community. I cannot recall a case that it wasn't a young man or going into middle-aged men, but it's always men that I have seen clinically for this that have come in voluntarily. I know that there are women that report these issues as well, but just experientially, I've not encountered that as much where I am. And the complaints are always very, I mean, sometimes it is excessive. I can recall one that was very clearly, I mean, we're talking multiple hours a day, seven days a week, getting fired from jobs, things like that. And it's like, yes, there's clearly something's out of control here, but I can also recall cases where the person was convinced they had a pornography addiction because they were viewing less than once a month. At the same time, their wife had told them that they were going to get a divorce if they viewed porn ever again. And so they needed help fixing their addiction so that they didn't have to have a divorce. Yeah. So it definitely does come up in the context of a lot of patients who are seeking therapy or, or help or sexual or relationship counseling. And, you know, I think you bring up an important point there that sometimes it's partially about the role of the partner in all of this and how the partner feels about porn. And that could also kind of be creating this incongruence as well, that maybe your partner believes that you shouldn't watch porn and you want to do what's going to make your partner happy, but then you're engaging in this behavior that you don't want to be. So that's, you know, kind of another layer of incongruence on top of all of this, which only serves to make it more complex. Right. It it does. And I think that if you look at, in particular, uh, Dr. Sam Perry's work on some of these incongruence-related things, in particular looking at his work on marriages and relationships, I think that it's pretty clear that this is a factor, if you will, that does show up in marriages and that it does actually lead to relationship dissolution in ways that is quite concerning. Now, clinically speaking, if someone shows up at your office reporting problems relating to porn use or other sexual behaviors, and you do some digging and it seems like moral incongruence is the root cause of the problem, where do you go from there? Now, I ask this because, you know, someone's religious beliefs might be very core to who they are and how they identify, but at the same time, they may have very powerful sexual interests or desires that are incompatible with that. So I know we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier when we were talking about cognitive dissonance, but how do you resolve that incongruence? I think it involves a very honest conversation with the person where they're also being honest with themselves about what their values are, what their actual behaviors are, and where they would like things to be, and then evaluating and kind of interrogating what's realistic. If someone tells me they think pornography use is morally wrong, and they don't want to view pornography. I'm not going to tell them, well, fix your morals and this will all be the same. Change your morals and this will be fine. Everything goes, you'll be fine. That's not, I don't think that's my role as a therapist. If their beliefs are, are that ingrained, we're going to talk about those beliefs. We're going to interrogate them a little bit. But if the goal is to reduce pornography use, we would probably take a more acceptance and commitment-based approach. So acceptance and commitment therapy is an approach that's less about kind of forcing your way through anything and more about accepting yourself as you are and then still striving to live in accordance with your values without getting stuck when you fall short of it. And this is the piece that I I work with a lot with these type of folks is 
just because you did something that you thought was morally wrong doesn't mean that that's the defining aspect of who you are. It doesn't mean that you have to ruminate on it for hours or days or weeks. There's a way to accept your what you would consider your shortcomings and still keep striving towards the behavior set that you want. Now, I say that sometimes what the behavior set is that they want might be so fundamentally strict and rigid that it's not realistic, right? You know, so the person that's telling me, and I've had this in, in therapy, the person's like, well, my religion tells me that being gay is wrong. And so I have to stifle this desire to view gay porn or this desire to do this or be involved in same-sex relationships. And then we have to have a bigger conversation about how well that belief set is going to work in the long term. Be honest with you, most times it's very hard to make solid progress in that type of therapy because you're just challenging so many things all at once. But I can think of a few really kind of beautiful cases where a person learned to accept themselves for who they were, accept that they were not the super conservative person that they thought that they were, and find a belief set that matched what the way that they knew that they were, if you will, the, the belief set that matched their sexual orientation in a way that allowed them to pursue both in a way that was still fulfilling. And it didn't mean becoming an atheist. It didn't mean trying to pretend that there weren't same-sex attraction. It meant finding something in, in the middle there that matched for both. And, and it worked quite well. Yeah, I love that description of the way that you approach this. And, you know, I think some people kind of have this misconception that when somebody goes in and sees a therapist, that it's all the therapist imposing their values on the patient. And, you know, the goal of therapy is really to meet the patient where they are and help them to figure out what is going to be the best solution, especially when you're dealing with something really complex like this, as opposed to the therapist just saying, you need to change your religion or do something else like that. You know, you got to meet the patient where they are. And you also, in cases like this, really have to find out what the root cause of the problem is, you know, and if it is something that is centering around moral incongruence, that's what you need to focus on. Because if you focus on just let's stop watching porn altogether. And that's sort of like where you are, you're not addressing the real underlying cause that's leading to the problems. Now, I'm curious, how has your research on this subject been received? Have you, <laughs> do people generally think that it makes sense and, you know, have a favorable reception or have you received pushback for it or a bit of both? I'll be honest with you. I think the lion's share of the reception has been positive. So if I looked at sheer volume, 90, 95% of the feedback I've gotten has been positive. And even a lot of the, in the academic world, almost all the critical feedback I have gotten has not been arguing that I'm wrong, but more trying to delineate the boundaries of this. And this is just how scientists think. Well, yes, you might be right in this case, but what about this case? What about this case? What about this case? And it's just how scientists think. In the public, again, I mean, I actually don't get generally a lot of pushback when I talk to people about that, but there are some very, there have been over the years, some very vocal anti-pornography activists, if you will, that have pushed back a lot, that have framed this as me saying that porn addiction is fake and that you can never have a problem with porn, that I'm one of those pro-porn agenda pushers and things. I'm sure that anyone that's listened to your episode with Dr. Nicole Prousey is going to hear a little bit about those things as well. That exists out there. And yes, those folks have tried to get me fired. Yes, those folks have tried to get my studies retracted. There, But it, it really is, when you look at the grand scheme of things, a very, very loud but very small group of people that are kind of opposing it that strongly. 
Yes. And I have also been on the receiving end of attacks from some of those individuals as well. Some people seem very invested in this idea, very committed to this idea that pornography is inherently harmful and damaging and any attempt to explain it in a way that doesn't implicate porn as being the cause of problems in and of itself, they don't take very kindly to that. So it's a bit more ideological than it is scientific. It certainly is. I mean, one of my favorite ones is that I remember one of these anti-pornography activists going off about how certain researcher had taken me to task and proven everything I had done ever wrong. And like, I remember reading that as I'm sitting, having a beer with that other researcher at a conference. And it's like, I'm like, so you've proven everything I did wrong. I was talking to my friend here and he's like, oh, I, I didn't know that. And it, it really is this inflammatory good, bad research, proving other research wrong. Within the research community, it's just not accurate at all. Most of the people in this field are genuinely trying to figure out what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not, trying to understand things. And yes, activists can spin our research any way they want to, but when you look at it, it really collectively points at this idea with pornography use, that pornography use is a biopsychosocial experience. And depending on the biopsychosocial context in which it's occurring, sometimes it does cause problems. A lot of the times it doesn't. But you cannot say porn is good or porn is bad without taking into account that biopsychosocial aspect. Yes, I totally agree with that. Well, thank you for helping us to better understand this concept of moral incongruence and how it can explain many people's problems relating to pornography use. However, not all problems with porn can be explained by moral incongruence, so I'm looking forward to exploring other pathways in our next conversation. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Josh. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, definitely. So my website is joshuagrubsphd.com. You can also generally find me on Twitter at joshuagrubsphd. I'm currently you know, at Bowling Green State University as a faculty member, although later this year I'll be transitioning to the University of New Mexico. But generally speaking, if you just literally Google Joshua Grubbs PhD, almost all of those options are going to pop up, whether it's my website, my Twitter, or my academic affiliation pages. Those are all be right there. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being here. And I'll be sure to include links for everything in the show notes. All right. Thank you. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 